Thanks for listening to audio from Rockhaven Church. For more information on our ministry, please visit us at our website at www.rockhavenchurch.org. To Psalm, Psalm chapter 145. Psalm 145. <clears throat> Psalm 145. We, uh, for those of you new, uh, first time or haven't been back for a while, uh, I want to share with you what we're doing. We are studying the uh, articles, 10 articles of the Statement of Faith of the Evangelical Free Church to which we are part. This is the list of things that we believe. And not only what we believe, but then the difference it should make in our lives, our daily lives, and, and uh, what God is calling us to. And so, uh, as I've said before, you can have access to these either on our website or in printed copies. We'd be happy to give you one. But Article 1, uh, I'm going to stay in one more week, and I'll explain to you why in a moment. But as we have been, I'm, again, going to read Article 1, and then I'll explain more to you as we go. Article 1, we believe in one God creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his glory." That summation, we've looked at a number of different things over the last two weeks, um, but the reason we're in Psalm 145 is because last week, <laughs> as we were talking about God's character, I really wanted to figure out a way to incorporate this piece of Scripture, but as it turns out, we just ran out of time, okay? But I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't not look at it. And so I want to take a peek at Psalm 145 and not only see the character of God, who He is, but then to ask a couple of questions. Because we can study all day long the things that we believe, but then there's kind of two elements. One, we say we believe a thing, we have, it's got to make some impact, some change on our life. I, honestly, it's, it's like almost only or exclusively in our Western culture, and specifically in the United States, that you can say you can believe something but you may or may not participate in it, which isn't a biblical understanding of the word believe at all. If you say you believe, it makes an impact in your life. One of the classic examples of that would be that when Peter stepped out of the boat and walked on and went to Christ to meet him there in the sea, it would be said that Peter wouldn't have been able to say, I believe I can get out there unless the first step foot went over the edge of the boat. That's, that's what this core conviction of who we are and the difference it makes. So as I've been talking to Joel and Jason and, and Greg and, and Owen as we've been going through this, we say, we're going to present what we believe, but then I want to make sure that we put some meat on the bone so that you say, all right, now what difference does God want to make in my life because we collectively believe these things? And last week, we looked at a few of those. We did. We've talked about the sovereignty of God. We've talked about God being the creator God. We looked at God being unique in things only to him and his existence. He's the triune God, right? That there is none like him. That that stirs and works within us a question of identity and purpose. That God has created us in his image and as image bearers of God then we need to start letting, uh, created in dignity. We need to let go of those, those actions in our life that are 
undignified and see how that all works. But I'm not 100% sure as we begin our time here where to start, so I'm, I'm just going to start in the beginning. Not in the beginning, but when I was little. Okay, my dad's here, so this is the accountability of no telling fibs, right? But you all remember, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that when you were young, you heard the verse, right? Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Now, at that place and point in time in my life, uh, we were living in Southern California, and right at the base of the foothills, and I'll confess to you that I attempted to move those mountains many times, right? Uh, Which actually is quite freaky, because if you're in Southern California and there's this little eight-year-old dude praying to move a mountain and there'd be an earthquake, what would I have done? (laughs) Run in the house, I did it! You know, we give a little eight-year-old heart attack. Yeah. But I, I don't remember doing that often, but I do remember one other episode in, in that, you know, in that eight to ten range or whatever. Laying in my room, believing all of God's power and his care. Right? Laying in your room, all the lights off, right? And just whispering, Dear God, if you're really there, light up the room. Anybody else do that? Anybody else do that? By a show of hands, who's moved mountains and prayed the lights would come on? Right. And I wasn't doing it because I was afraid of the dark or whatever. I was doing it because I, 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 wanted, something, I, I wanted something fantastic to happen, something amazing to happen. I, I wanted, and, uh, and for the record, it didn't. I caught my brother one time. He must have been listening. Flipped the switch. No. But, you know, the problem with those types of things is, is that if you, like me, began your experience with God, recognizing some parts of his attributes, and then put him to the test, either to move a mountain or to turn your room bright, one of two things may happen. To some, when they've prayed those things, and it does not occur, they immediately assume he does not exist or he does not care. And both of those go against Scripture that we've been looking at. Still, a vast number of us, upon in our childhood, going through those stories without the understanding of the application of God's power and of faith, may be led to believe, incidentally, that we didn't deserve him to do that thing. Or we may wrongly, just like wrongly we believe we didn't deserve it, we may wrongly believe that we didn't ask right or believe right, or in a nutshell, that somehow, some way, there was something wrong with us. And that is a destructive force. You know why, why God didn't let me move mountains? Do you know why God didn't turn on the light? I have some possibilities now that a few years has lapsed by, and I've spent more time in Scripture. I know that God wants what's best for me, and God knows what I need to grow. God knows what would happen 
if I had gotten my way moving a mountain, causing tsunamis, freaking my brother out by turning the light on in our shared bedroom, in truth, God knew as my heavenly Father that if those things would have happened, I would have wildly done something and I wouldn't have taken the time to know Him anymore. God cares. And He is the Lord, He is our Good Shepherd, and He leads us and guides us so that we might experience the true things of Him and not just the things we want of Him. Now, we've been making reference to a theological survey that is done every two years. And we've talked about biblical literacy. We've talked about biblical worldview. We've talked about myths and things that people wrongly misunderstand, excuse me, wrongly understand or make up of their own beliefs as the things as it pertains to God. And we've said, what a perfect timing to look at what we believe and consequently the difference that it should make in our life. But we are not unique in our struggle because for generation upon generation, people have been battling these same things. There's an older but very good book. I've made reference to it a couple of different times. You might find it in our library. How's the plug? That's a good plug, right? It's entitled, Your God is Too Small, and is written by Phillips. And basically what he proposes, and I'm going to share with you, is this. Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction, without any faith in God at all, This is not because they are particularly wicked or selfish or, as the old-fashioned would say, godless. It is because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to fit in with their new scientific age, or big enough to command their highest admiration and respect. What needs to occur is that there needs to be, excuse me, there What needs to occur is the correction of two things. One, the inadequate conceptions of God, which still linger unconsciously in many minds and which prevent our catching a glimpse of the true character of God. And secondly, to suggest ways in which we can find real uh, solutions for God and this and that. Okay, I digress. What he is saying is, is that when our life, in our life, what hinders our growth is somehow some way in us, and it's been this way a generation upon generation, is that when we are taught a thing, either in Sunday school or when we were 10 or whenever, that understanding of God takes such deep root in us that we remain in our adult life with the same understand, same belief of who God is. And so, like I said to you before, if you prayed to move mountains or pray that God would heal grandma or pray that, and it happened opposite of that. You may believe that you didn't have enough faith. You may believe that you didn't pray rightly. You may believe that God listens to everybody but not you. But what's happening is there's impressions. And apart from Scripture, apart from Scripture, if we continue to make up our mind about those things, we will have a view of God that is inerrant. And in our adulthood, in our adulthood, we will be stagnant, not growing, and then we beg the question, because this is what we looked at in the survey, what are we sharing with the next generation and the generation after that? If our own views of God are flawed, what hope is there for the next generation? When specifically God has said to us, go, make disciples, parents, teach your children what I have shared with you about myself. And so the penitent heart, right, the suffering heart, the, the willing heart, 
is willing to go before God in the revelation of his character, specifically in Jesus, to see who God is and let the truth of God's word combat the misconceptions that we may have incidentally developed growing up. Are you with me? Does that make sense? You each are gathered here today. So you are, you are not ignoring God. You are not denying that He exists. But in order to be filled in accordance with His plan, we must see God correctly in accordance with Scripture. We must let Him have His rightful rule and reign in our lives. We must be committed to the growth that will naturally occur because He's placed His Spirit in us. And then... We must invest in others. In the weeks to come, we will look at additional articles as we study the impact of canon and scripture and inspiration and infallibility as we look to uh, God uh, um, and the power of the gospel, uh, the differences, justification, and sanctification make in our lives and how we then take what we believe and invest that in other people. But today, today, if you will, I want to spend some time here in Psalm 145. It's the last recorded psalm of David, King David. David, right, as we know from other places of Scripture, is a man after God's own heart, right? You might read that and go, wow, golly gee whiz, God really liked him, right? Well, there's some truth to that. Uh, But David also really loved the Lord. And through his experience, both high points and failures, He learned a whole lot of stuff about the character of God. Uh, Incidentally, just go over here, side note. Sometimes when we go through hard things, and one of those other misconceptions about the character of God is that in later years when we go through suffering or we go through hard things, then then we just blame God that just like when we were little, He didn't care, He didn't work, we didn't do something, there must be something wrong with us. But but God is always revealing, and again, in the weeks to come, we will look at the doctrine of suffering and sin and of all of those different things that God is redeeming and saving us from. But I digress. David, in all of these things throughout the Psalms, a sneak peek into his prayer journal, if you will, continues to show over and over and over again throughout his life and his experiences, his understanding of the character and rightful character of God. And so when you read the Psalms, and many people will tell me, I just love the Psalms, right? And I'll ask, Why? Oh, because they're so beautiful. Good. But do you know what makes them good? You know what makes them beautiful? You know what makes them powerful? It's the revealed character of God that is put to song and to reading. And in this case, this crescendo of David's last recorded psalm, so powerful in the Jewish people, right, that it would be read uh, twice in the morning and once at night uh, with the belief, right, that if you read these things and meditated on them, that it would glorify God and it would improve your life and so, so forth and so on. But I digress. We have this beautiful, beautiful piece of Scripture, and let's dive in uh, to it together. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the entirety of it, and then we're going to come back and we're going to look at it exegetically as been our custom and our, our way here. You'll recognize the first part because that's what I read from at the opening of our service. I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Okay? That's what I read to you before. Now, Mike, some of you are note takers, right? Some of you, right, like to underline, mark things up. 
while I'm reading, if something jumps out at you, mark it up, circle it up, make a note of it. And then if you say, well, I don't have a pen, right? Go back to it this afternoon and look again. But we'll make mention of these things as we go. Verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall ring aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. And your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and rises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and give them Excuse me, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears the cry and saves them. The Lord perseveres, uh, excuse me, the Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Now, if you're like me, you might have noticed all kinds of stuff that was jumping off the pages in the character of God revealed. That God is kind, that God is majestic, that God is great, that he's abounding in goodness, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, his steadfast love, his power, and all of these things that belong only to him. You might see that over and over. Even while I was reading it, you might have already begun to, to see how the revealed character of God, how the revealed character of God in the truth of his word is there to combat the misconceptions that you've had of him in your youth or in your life experience. Case in point. We made mention of one earlier. Sometimes people, right, will either deny, get angry at, ignore, or right, whatever, when going through hard things, somehow believing that that is not fair or that God, right? But we just read God is good and that God is kind. And how does that go together with all of these things, right? The paradoxical teaching that Jesus began his ministry on. You'll read through uh, Matthew chapter 5, and you'll look at the Beatitudes, and you'll begin to see how the, the kingdom teaching of Jesus it really is getting into the heart of men and women to turn our mindsets completely upside down. Because in the culture in the day and age that he is teaching, just like in our day and age today, we believe that, that, that those people who have lots of good stuff and who seem like they never suffer, that God really loves them, and what's he got against me? When that's not, that's not biblically accurate at all. And, and, and that doesn't take into account all the other things that we're going to study in the weeks to come. But as we experience these things in life, we, we begin to see the true character of God revealed in Jesus who says, blessed are those who mourn and weep, for I'm going to do something special in their lives. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for I'm going to do something special in their lives. 
And we stop trusting our own way and our own wisdom and our own intellect and begin trusting in his way and his truth and his righteousness. Looking at Jesus, the revealed perfect fullness of God, who he is and what he was doing, we begin to understand that God wants to do something absolutely incredible in our lives. Uh, Let's go with this. The fact of the matter is that when we study all of the attributes of God, who he is, both those that he communicates with us and those that are unique to him, those incommunicable attributes, right? His uniqueness, his power, everything that, that makes God, God. His existence is so majestic, so glorious, so powerful. That just be, because of who he is demands one thing. Our worship. Because he is God, whether you're following him or not, whether you believe in him or not, because he is holy, because there's none like him, because of who he is, all will worship. And it comes down to a choice. We will either do that on purpose or on the day. You know what the day is? Yeah, that's the Dida day, the big day. The day when he comes back in all his glory and all his power and all his splendor. On that day, the Bible says that every knee will bow. And so you choose to follow or you don't. Those are the only two options. But make no mistake, he is to be worshipped. That's what David says as he begins this psalm. Remember what I said last week, why do we exist? We exist to exalt God in our hearts and our minds and our lives and our interactions with others. David begins that and he says, I will extol. And to extol is to exalt, it's to praise, it's to worship. In the whole of my life because of who you are. This is, this is the crescendo in David's life. In the whole of my life and who you are, I will exalt you. It's a, it's a direct address. David knows that God is not aloof and that there, even amidst his family, we're at the end of things. I mean, this is his last recorded psalm. David knows that because of all, you know, regardless of everything that he's done, he knows who God is. And so he addresses him personally. He addresses him, he addresses him directly. I'm going to praise you. What a wonderful invitation that we have. What a, what a wonderful gift we have. That you don't have to address God through me or through a priest or through someone who you think has access to a greater knowledge of God than you do. And that's what David says next. I will exalt you, my God. That's personal. It's personal. And my king. The Hebrew rendering of that is, I will exalt you, my God, the king. It's interesting because David's the king. And, and God made David king. So it's like God's like, David, you're the king. David's like, no, I'm not. You're the king. No, Dave, you're the king. No, I'm not. You're the king. Right? Trying to outdo one another. But let's back up. 
Gracious and kind is the invitation of God to involve us in the things of Him. Our response, in light of the personal relationship and revelation of our hearts to the things He's done to us, is to give Him the adoration that He deserves. And the rightful position in our lives to be the ultimate, when we say king, the other word we use is Lord, or contemporarily today we can say leader in our lives. That we're going to trust His wisdom and His revealed truth. That we're going to trust in the things that He asks us to do and not argue with Him when He tells us, forgive your enemies, love others, so forth and so on. That even though we don't understand those things, we're going to implement that in our lives in light of who He is because He's God, He's the King, and I'm not Him. But one of the other side note... One of the things that's perplexing in evangelicalism, to which we are a part, and in the world we live in today, it's like the perfect storm, is for decade upon decade, and I've talked to many people about this, for decade upon decade, generation upon generation, we've talked endlessly about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? That God's not interested in a religion, but that he wants a relationship with you, just like we've seen of David, directly. I will praise you, my God. That Jesus came so that we might have life and have it full. That Jesus didn't want us to grow to be more religious, but he wanted us to come into fellowship with him. And that's the promises that he makes in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. That I will be with you always. Why? Because I'm going to give you of myself. And when the spirit comes into your life, we will fellowship together. and We'll have a relationship that lasts forever. And so what we've done in our consumer mindsets in the world today, and even here as we walk through this, we've taken the personal and powerful and meaning relationship with Jesus, and we've developed based it. Because we think personal means that I can make it whatever I want. And that's wrong. It's errant. Not to mention that he doesn't save us to put us alone on an island by ourselves. He saves us to include us in something bigger. What? His family. He ad- that's, the Bible's full that he adopts us as his children. That we are the inheritors of his great inheritance. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he puts us in his family as a part of his kingdom to grow and to understand. And corporately he puts us together. And we see these things revealed for us in this psalm. David says it's not only these things that are true and your, your greatness and your greatness is unsearchable. But one generation shall commend your works to another. Now, we can look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 of the command of God and his word to parents. Parents, train up your children the way they should go. Teach them the things that you have learned of me. And in Matthew chapter 28, the last thing Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples, teaching them what I have taught you about my love, about forgiveness, about the world. If we'd only do it. Not keeping it unto ourselves, but understanding God has asked us, invited us, commanded us to be involved in the lives of other people. And as parents, right, it is not acceptable someday to stand before Jesus and like, I don't know. I mean, I would have assumed the pastor would have told my kid or the youth group worker or the academy. I I mean, I hope they did. I mean, I got them there, didn't I? Right? Unless you're a Small child growing up in Southern California and your mother gives you your offering money and then when she drops you off at Sunday school and drives around the corner, you and your buddies go to the candy shop. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. I had to call you out. It's one of my favorite stories. You rebel. Uh, just also as a side note, 
because I don't get this opportunity very often. You know, I may have tried to move mountains as a kid, and I may have believed that something was wrong with me, but I know that I grew up in a house of love, and I grew up in a house where I never doubted that God existed, and I grew up in a house that always believed the Bible to be true. Thank you. Now, that's not to say I didn't make a mess of it and take my Sunday school offering money and go buy candy, too. And we all have some kind of faith journey. We all have something that's happened to us in life and where we've gone, but what do we come back to? What do we do? And what I want so very desperately, do you know as a pastor in all my life, it's, it's, I, 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 I'm not interested in counting how many people are in the seats. All I want is for you to behold who God is and the truth of his word and for your life to be transformed that you might experience the very good things of God and, and stop exchanging the, the hope and peace and joy of God for the things that don't last in the world. These are the choices that God is, is, is asking us to align ourselves, that we can, either, we can either embrace the full character of God that brings about hope, peace, and joy, or we can continue to rebel, deny, ignore, or suffer the effects of, of our juvenile ideas of God and somehow fall back into anger and fear and guilt, which doesn't only affect ourselves, but it affects our relationship with other people. And that's why the beautiful thing of the gospel is, is not only is God mighty in his deeds and awesome, but he's included us in something bigger than ourselves for us to put into practice the things, the, the, the difference his character makes, but also to have those people in our lives that will remind us of those things and for us to remind others of the faithfulness of God, of the goodness of God, of the righteousness of God, of the grace of God, the mercy of God. But then the psalmist does something different. And for some time, one of my, right, I'll, I'll say it, favorite pieces of Scripture, <laughs> again, you know, there's lots of them. And if you're going to grow into your understanding of God, then what you have to do is based on where you're at in your faith journey right now, you have to dive into God's word and you have to say, what is it that I need to know of God in light of what I'm going through right now? If you don't, you're going to continue to get what you always got. Okay? But if you do, what did we just read? He's so very good. So very kind. Does that mean that every hard thing in the world is going to disappear? Nope. Jesus said himself, he said, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. Right? Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And what does that mean? It means that we've not set our hope on earthly things. We've not set our hope on things in this life being perfect but that we have the answer to the age-old question, is there more to life than this? And the answer is yes. And in Jesus, creator God, our redeemer God, right? Our lives are protected, as David wrote, forever and ever, forever and ever. And so in my own study, which I'm encouraging you to do, uh, I spend a lot of time in First and Second Timothy, and one of the things uh, that we have is this uh, um, 
piece of scripture from First Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. It says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Okay? I like that because when I very first read it, I was feeling quite pathetic about the size of my biceps. Now I got an excuse not to worry about it. Okay? Because that's just one value. Right? And I've got great friends that are bigger than me. I love having big friends. But the fact of the matter is, is one thing you might infer for this, right, is what Paul's saying is, why you spend so much time worrying about worldly things, about bodily things, about physical things? Don't you know that in light of what God's done, he wants you to work on godly things? And what is godliness? It is not a religious pursuit of somehow this, you know, um, uh, uh, also juvenile belief in our minds that we could never attain it right? Somehow we believe that, well, I'm never going to be perfect anyway, so I'm not going to try. Stop thinking like that, right? Or, or somehow some way that it's like, oh, forget. godliness, it just sounds like, ugh, it just sounds like such a churchy word, but it's a piece of scripture, and we're commanded to train ourselves to be godly. Now, some of you Right, run marathons and hike mountains and do all of this stuff. Did you? Were you, were you successful at that the very first time you tried it? Huh? Did you win? <laughs> no, you, you. You spent time. You invested in time. You did these things and you grew, and and you've been monitoring your progress. How is it that we can do all of that in all of life, but we fail to do it in our relationship with God? Somebody should have told us when we were 10 that it's not about moving mountains or turning on the lights, but it's about growing in our understanding of his character and the difference that that makes in our lives. For us, no, certainly we're the benefactors, but for the benefit of other people. So don't just train yourself for bodily training, but for godliness. Because godliness has value in the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And for this, we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. The Savior of all people, especially those who believe. What? That does not mean all people go to heaven. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that all roads lead there, that you can call God by different names, that you can do this. It does not teach that. And in the weeks to come, we'll study what we believe in regards to that, but we've already read one of them in the last couple of weeks, and that's where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father who resides in heaven except through me. Narrow, small. Yeah. But he has it within his capacity if people will make a choice. He is the Savior to everyone. But to those who have put their faith and trust in God, he's especially ours. Especially to us. And in light of that, our lives should look different, shouldn't they? Shouldn't we live a little different than the world? 
We don't want to be lumped into the big mess. It's like, well, he's saving everyone. No, yeah, but, 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 but I know him, and he knows me. And so there's something, there's something special about that, especially. See, I think that's where David goes next. Because you got to underline them, you got to mark them, you got to circle them, right? All of the alls, all of the alls. That I, in light of that, that's where he goes, he says, the Lord is good to all. Not only that, but then the Lord upholds all, the Lord raises up all, the eyes of all, the Lord is near to all, to all who call on him, to preserve, preserves all, let all flesh praise him forever and ever. How do we wrap all this up? Like this. If this morning, for the very first time, you're willing to let go of your preconceived and previous ideas of who God is, you know, the ones that were formulated when we were little, and to to look at Scripture and to swear allegiance to Him. To say, look, I'm not going to be reliant upon my own wisdom, but I'm going to be reliant upon God's wisdom. And I see that God is good. See, that's why He sent His Son. He sent His Son so that we might know Him. And then He was about some awesome stuff besides that. Because not only, not only did He send Him so that we might know what love is, and so we might know how we ought to live and how we can live, but Jesus knew the whole time that He was going to do what we could never do. And that would be to take our place in death so that we might have life everlasting. You see, and when we want that, it's got to begin with us embracing who God is. No longer can we be, you know, creating little synchronistic idols, the things that we want of God to do for us. But if our lives are going to be filled with hope and peace and joy, then we have to swear allegiance to Him. We have to, as the Bible says, put our faith and trust in Him. And you know what's the simplest thing to do? He's done all of the hard work, so all we have to do is to tell him thank you. And to ask him to come into our lives and to lead us and guide us. That we might be changed. And not just for us, but that he might use us in the lives of other people. So if you're feeling that right now this morning, you might want to just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being you. Please forgive me for the times I've fought against that. I accept what Jesus has done for me. And I really want you to be in my life. Show me more of who you are and the difference that'll make. Help me to be equipped and empowered to make a difference in your family and a difference in the world, now and forever. Amen. Bring your team up. God's going to be worshipped no matter if the guitar comes across correctly or we can get it out of our voices. It's what happens in here. That's where worship comes from. Miles knows that. Carrie knows that. Our music team knows that. I know many of you know that. But that's what makes it possible to worship on a Tuesday. To him who is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. To him be the glory and honor and power forever. Amen.